What are the innate defenses against viruses? Is it easy for a virus to establish a successful infection? This, and much more, in this episode of The Viral Talk. Before we get to that, I will kindly ask you to follow The Viral Talk on Spotify, Google Podcast, or any podcasting platform you're listening to this from, to leave a follow on Instagram or X, as there is additional material that gets posted there every so often, and to have a leave a review on the episode on podchaser.com. But now, without further ado, let's go viral. Hello and welcome to The Viral Talk, the podcast that makes virology easy. I'm your host Federico, and in this episode I will explain what are our barriers, innate and adaptive defenses against viral pathogens, and how they work. We're back with our core episodes on the basics of infection and virology after the very successful Ask a Professional series. I'm personally very excited about it, and because one of our last core episodes was focused on the way viruses manage to hijack the cell and establish an infection, I thought that one very interesting point to mark was that we're actually not so helpless against virus and viral infection, and it's quite a difficult task for them to establish an infection. So let's get started, shall we? There are actually quite a few hurdles that viruses need to surpass if they want to establish an infection. If you think about it, Viruses, bacteria, fungal pathogens, they are all over us. Lots of them float in the air, or are found on the ground, or in water. But we don't really get sick all the time we walk out and about, do we? But why is that? Well, one of the reasons is that we have quite a sturdy and difficult to penetrate exterior. Our skin, for example, in the absence of cuts, abrasions, punctures, it's quite a formidable barrier against external pathogens. It is not a coincidence, in fact, that the majority of viruses that we deal with tend to establish infection and to get in us through roots that bypass the skin. If you think about flu, SARS-CoV-2, measles, they infect our respiratory airways, which are the, some of the very few parts of our body that are exposed to the exterior through the nose and mouth, for example. Rotaviruses, cytomegalovirus, they infect us either through consumption of contaminated food or through sharing of fluids also bypassing the skin. Rabies is transmitted through bites of infected individuals, and it only ends up in our blood thanks to effectively a physical tool, which would be the teeth or the the mouth of the rabid animal or the rabid individual. HIV is transmitted sexually, which also bypasses the skin, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think you are starting to get it. It is impossible for viruses to infect us if they lack a way to surpass our external barriers, which are first and foremost layers of protection. But even in the instance in which they manage to surpass that barrier, it's not like viruses have smooth sailing from from then onwards. Depending on their mode of entry, they still have to survive a series of chemical and biological barriers that are put there to mop up any virus like enough to get through it. For example, let's start with the airways. The nasal airways are also an example of mucosal surfaces. They're called in this way because they're covered, as you can imagine, in a sticky protein-filled substance called mucus, which has exactly the role of trap and degrade not only pathogens that get inside, but also all sorts of debris, which our lungs are not very happy breathing. The the mucus itself is usually packed with proteins, like 
cathepsins. They are protein that chew up other proteins and other pathogens. The mucus also has a specific chemical compositions with areas very high or very high levels of oxygens, which usually tend to be toxic for pathogens. Mucins, which are the building blocks of mucus, are also able to destroy proteins and therefore to destroy pathogens, bacteria and viruses alike, effectively forming a very powerful neutralizing platform for the vast majority of the pathogens that manage to get in us. But there are also other enzymes like lysozyme, which is found in very high quantities in our saliva, which degrades and chops up other proteins and so on and so forth. In the airways, particularly the nose, we also have forms of mechanical defenses. For example, we have cilia in our mucus, which are exteriors like filet that move constantly and turn on and off our mucus every so often, our mucus layers, so that the old mucus, which has trapped all the incoming viruses, gets then degraded and then recycled. We can also move to the digestive tract, where it is, I think, a bit easier to imagine what our defenses are in there. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind is that the pH of our stomach is very, very low because it's filled with gastric acids that tend to dissolve the things that we ingest, including viruses. But that's only the beginning. The gastric acids in our stomach can also be a danger for us. In fact, in order to sustain them, the stomach has to be layered with a different type of mucus is a thick layer of sticky and protein and cell pack material that has a double function of protecting our organs from the very high acidity of the environment and to provide a platform where our microbiota, meaning the bacteria and other microorganisms that live in our gut, and our other immune cells can dwell, can stay. When we move from the stomach to the intestine, we also find the majority of our microbiota. And relatively recent research has also highlight that these bacteria population have a very important role in, the in defense against external pathogens. They do this mostly by competing with them for resources or for even for just for space for them to land and infect, by making it impossible for them to reach our cells and therefore establish an infection, or by even aiding in the immune response when and if the viruses manage to infect us. Additionally, the GI tract also contains specific regions called Peyer's patches, which are little regions that lay within our intestine where lots of immune cells lay resident. This is a strategic post for our immune system that gets the chance to surveil everything that comes in our body and intervene in the case that a pathogen has managed to make its way through the intestine. We can also then move on to the blood, which may also seem relatively straightforward in terms of defenses. In fact, it is made of red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. And white blood cells, as most of you know already, or leukocytes, are among the major actors in our immune system. They scan the environment for signs of infection and release chemicals and proteins that destroy and degrade harmful intruders. Additionally, they can start the inflammation process, so a release signal that recruit other cells and factors take up bits of the intruders known as antigen and bring them in our lymphatic system where other immune cells produce antibodies. But that is not just it. Our blood also contains a series of proteins that constantly circulate in our body in an inactive form called complement system or complement cascade. As the name implies, it has the role of aiding or complementing the immune action of antibodies that are produced during infection and circulate in the blood. 
It is a very complex activation mechanism, which I will not explain in details, but the end result of this complex activation cascade is to stimulate phagocytes, which are cells that clear foreign and damaged material. So they, from the Greek phagein, they eat all the damaged cells, the debris, but also pathogens and degrade them. But they also then amplify inflammation. So inflammation is a multi-step process which incurs in redness, swelling and a rise of temperature, as well as pain from an external point of view. Now, the rise in temperature itself is a very important tool to curb infection because most pathogens, most viruses cannot really produce functional proteins. They cannot stay functional at very high temperatures because their proteins start to unfold. So they do not take the shape they would normally take and therefore they cannot function as well as they would normally do. Inflammation, which is all, also includes the swelling, so the increase of fluids to the area in which a pathogen, a pathogen is found, is necessary because it allows for more cells to move from other parts of the body, other more immune cells, into the place where the pathogen is found and therefore start activating all the different complexes necessary to kill pathogens. Additionally, these macrophages and cells of the immune system and the complement system also activate the so-called cell killing machinery, which is called membrane attack complex. So effectively, this system is in charge of killing all the cells that show signs of having been infected. By killing all the infected cells, our organism makes sure that the virus cannot spread, effectively curb the infection. But of course, Many of these defenses would be useless if our cells had no way of detecting that a virus had invaded us, right? How good can a defense system really be if it cannot see what it should defend us from? So the majority of cells have ways to detect pathogens, and they do so through receptors, aka little proteins that sit either on the cellular membrane, looking at the exterior of the cell, or that are found in the cytosol, meaning the interior of the cells that are specialized in identifying certain molecules or proteins called PAMPs or DAMPs, which are acronyms that stand for Pathogen-Associated Molecular Patterns or Danger-Associated Molecular Patterns. That is because pathogens like bacteria and viruses may be covered in molecules or proteins that look nothing like the things that are usually found in our body. And that is a clear signal that tells cells that there might be an intruder. Perfect example is a molecule called lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, which is exclusively found on bacteria and not in humans. Another molecule that is immediately recognized as a red flag for viruses is double-stranded RNA, because it's typical of a certain group of viruses, but in our cells, RNA is only found in a single-stranded form. So finding it floating around inside the cell immediately raises some red flags as it is a sign of infection. Once the signals are recognized by our cells, the cells then start to activate their defenses. So all the things they have just listed are general defenses. They are in place to protect us from all sorts of pathogens and intruders, not particularly targeted at a type of pathogen. But with the ability to recognize different PAMPs comes the possibility to target, to tailor the immune response a little bit better against specific types of pathogens. 
and the best non-adaptive virus-specific immune responders that we have are interferons. Now, what are interferons? So they belong to a large class of proteins known as cytokines. They are molecules that are used for communication between cells to treat the, trigger the protective defenses of the immune system that help get rid of pathogens. Interferons are named for their ability to quote-unquote interfere with viral replication by protecting cells from virus infections. Interference is such a big problem for viruses that many of these have evolved proteins with the precise role of deactivating them. They also have various other functions. In fact, they can activate immune cells, such as natural killer cells and macrophages. They increase host defenses by amplifying antigen presentation, which is that process by which cells show little pieces of degraded or chopped up viruses to other immune cells to tell them that there is an infection going on and that it is necessary to start producing antibodies. Certain symptoms of infection, such as fever, muscle pains, and all those flu-like symptoms that appear for every type of virus, are also caused by the production of interferons and other cytokines. An increased temperature or fever is very beneficial against viruses as it denatures or destroys the proteins that they produce, making it difficult to form fully functional viral particles. There's so, so much more. In fact, in response to interferon, many cells start reducing the rate of protein production. In so doing, they slow the rate at which viruses can replicate. This, of course, is a double-edged sword because it can impact both the cells that, that can no longer make the proteins necessary to survive, but especially affect a virus that cannot replicate and therefore it cannot spread. In addition, interferons induce production of hundreds of other proteins that have roles in combating viruses. For example, interferon-stimulated cells limit virus spread by self-destructing through apoptosis, or interferons can also be released by cells and make other neighboring cells that are not being infected yet that there is an infection going on, and these activate a specific state that makes them very difficult to be infected, usually by taking lots of external receptors that are found on the exterior of cells for other functions and internalizing them, making sure that viruses cannot latch onto them and therefore cannot enter the cells, it cannot infect them. All these things lead then to the activation of our adaptive immune system that, as the name suggests, builds up defenses that are more specific. So specific that they're made to inactivate and kill specific viruses we've been infected by, such as flu is not just like a general response against every type of respiratory virus, but actually a very targeted response against the proteins that flu and only flu produces whenever we get infected by them, for example. There is so much to say on the activation and the function of our adaptive immune system that it is better left for another episode, which will be entirely focused on it. It is also quite complicated, so I believe it will require a bit more time to explain and to make easy to understand, and also will have so many names and so many informations that it's probably left for a standalone episode altogether. So having said so, I think we have now reached the end of this episode. 
I hope it was clear and straightforward, but if it wasn't, please do not hesitate to contact the Vile Talk on Instagram, X, or on the podcast email, which all will be provided in the show notes of the episode. I will be very happy to answer any lingering questions, and as usual, I will also provide links to review articles for people that might have that kind of interest, and would like to know more in-depth about our immune defenses. Finally, if you don't do it already, follow the Viral Talk on Instagram, X, and now recently LinkedIn. Follow the Viral Talk on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any podcasting app you are listening this from. And if it's not too much to ask, please, please, please leave a review of the episode on podchaser.com and share the podcast with your friends, family, or anyone you know that might be interested in all things virology. It has been a pleasure. See you next time. And let's go viral.